the philosophy of Sri Aurobindo, the one task for which our lives were born, to raise the world to God in deathless light, to bring God down to the world on earth we came, to change the earthly life to life divine. These lines from Sri Aurobindo's epic Savitri sum up the essentials of his life and philosophy. His philosophy is intimately concerned with man's life here on earth, not with some distant heavens of paradise elsewhere or the summits of some nirvana beyond. To Sri Aurobindo, this world is real, as real as the divine reality from which it has issued. Life has a purpose. It is the proper business of man to fulfill it. And what's the purpose? To uplift life, to change states of human imperfection, ignorance and pain into conditions of divine perfection, knowledge and bliss. This indeed is the objective of nature in evolution to which Sri Aurobindo draws attention. All life is a steady progression of a consciousness in the world. Stage by stage, gradation by gradation, a concealed consciousness is slowly developing and organizing itself in various types of life, stone, mineral, plant, animal and man. At each stage it is more overt in its action. And this consciousness, says Sri Aurobindo, is divine in its origin. It is a manifesting power of God. The more it is developed and expressed, the higher the quality of life that is possible. It is up to man, the conscious, awakened being, to take steps to give full expression to this divine consciousness and change the very character of life. And the means to do it is self-concentration, self-discovery. In other words, a life-oriented yoga. The main principle of this pragmatic discipline is for man to become more and more conscious of his own being, the various parts and powers that are latent behind his surface personality, 
which is all that he is normally aware of. Behind this gross physical body, there is a subtle physical organization. His normally active life force is only a fraction of the plentiful life energy that is lying untapped. Behind and above his limited mind are ranges of greater faculties of knowledge and consciousness. Behind all is the soul, the divine center in man, which has in its power to infuse divine light and bliss into life. To activize these larger life energies, mental faculties, soul powers, organize them and express them in day-to-day -day activities is the way. To the extent man succeeds in realizing and working these unused parts of his being, his life changes its character. It sheds its elements of ignorance and its brood of egoism, division, disharmony and suffering. It grows into an increasing mold of knowledge, light, power and harmony. A speciality of Sri Aurobindo's approach to this problem is its integral character. He does not stress on the potentiality of the body alone or the life force alone or the mind or the emotions alone. His is not a brand of Hatha Yoga or Raja Yoga or Kundalini or Bhakti Yoga. He takes man as a whole and his method appeals to all of man to respond and grow. His yoga of self-perfection contains the essential elements of all the traditional yogas, the Trimarga, and it proceeds to perfect and transform his entire nature into a divine nature. One special feature of this yoga is to be noted. It combines the method of the Vedanta with the aims of the Tantra. Neither the self nor the Shakti is pursued exclusively. The quest and attainment of the self is followed by the dynamization of the Shakti for the transformation of life. This individual achievement, however, is only the first capital step in this scheme. Man does not and cannot live alone. He is a member of a collectivity. He draws upon it constantly for his own nourishment and growth. The society, too, is an organism 
which draws upon man who is its conscious limb. The awakened man is obliged by evolving nature to pour out his multiple energies into the collective progression. The individual has to contribute the fruits of his inner growth for the betterment of his fellow men by thought, by influence, by action. This aspect of the collective responsibility of man is another dimension of Sri Aurobindo's vision of the perfection of life. The third is the consequence of the second. As each society develops in the measure of the growth of its constituent individuals in the direction of harmony, unity and progressive perfection, there is a simultaneous collaboration with the purpose of cosmic nature in welding together the various collectivities into one living whole, the ideal of human unity. Sri Aurobindo perceives in the course of the history of the race a steady growth in this direction and foresees an eventual unity of all nations in spite of all the discouraging happenings on the international scene today. To conclude, Sri Aurobindo's philosophy is a bold approach to solve the complex problems of terrestrial life. It refuses to accept any dichotomy of spirit and matter, heaven and earth. It founds the unity of God and nature in man and shows the way to realize it here and now on earth. This field of spiritual evolution, so that the spirit shall look out through matter's gaze, and matter shall reveal the spirit's face. Sri Aurobindo as a yogi. Sri Aurobindo once observed that his entry into spiritual life was through a side door. It was indeed so, because he never sought the spiritual objective of liberation of his soul. What in fact happened was that spiritual experiences and even realizations 
crowded upon him unsought. Thus, when he was reading the English translations of the Upanishads by Max Muller, while in Cambridge as a student, the concept of self, Atman, made a deep impression on him as the one reality worth realizing. On his setting foot on the soil of India at Apollo Bandar, while returning from England, a tremendous calm settled upon him, which stayed for weeks together. Once in Baroda, when the horse carriage in which he was driving was in danger of an accident, he willed that no mishap should occur, and immediately a luminous being, a godhead, surged up from within, mastered the situation, and averted the accident. He had no serious belief in images and idols, but once, when he happened to visit a temple of Kali on the banks of the Narmada and looked at the image, he regarded a powerful presence therein, the presence of the World Mother. Similarly, during a visit to Kashmir in the course of his duties, he had on the hills a vivid experience of the vacant infinite. In his early days, while in Baroda, Sri Aurobindo got interested in yoga when he learnt that yoga gives power. He had set his heart on the liberation of his motherland from alien rule, and he felt that if yoga could give him effective power to achieve his purpose, he ought to utilize that potential. Accordingly, he took a few lessons from a friend of his in pranayama, the science of breath. He practiced it for four to five hours per day. And what happened is interesting. Let him speak. The results were remarkable. I felt an electric power around my head. My powers of writing were nearly dried up. They revived with a great vigor. I could write prose and poetry with a flow. That flow has never ceased since then. Thirdly, good health. I grew stout and strong. The skin became smooth and fair. And there was a flow of sweetness in the saliva. I used to feel a certain aura around the head. There were plenty of mosquitoes, but they did not come to me.
However, with increasing involvement in the militant, political, and revolutionary activity of that period, Sri Aurobindo's practice of pranayam began to get irregular and came to a stop. Meanwhile, he met a remarkable yogi, Vishnu Bhaskar Lele, who initiated him into the dynamics of meditation. Both the guru and the disciple were flabbergasted with the results. In a short space of three days, Sri Aurobindo's mind became absolutely still and his consciousness took its permanent poise above the thought range. He realized the Brahmic consciousness, immobile, silent, indivisible. Sri Aurobindo was advised to deliver himself into the hands of the inner guide who had by now thrust aside the veil and taken up the sadhana into his own divine hands. The next important step in the development of Sri Aurobindo's yogic evolution was taken during his incarceration in Alipur jail for one full year. He was studying the Gita and the Upanishads. He was undergoing spiritual transmutation day and night. Yes, even during sleep. He is on record stating that Swami Vivekananda appeared to him daily for nearly a fortnight and showed him the regions above the higher mind leading towards the supermind. He explained to him certain truths regarding the levels of intuitive mind and left only after he had said all that he had come to say. It was during this critical stage in his life that he found himself regarding Vasudeva the universal Godhead, wherever he turned, in his cell, in the garden, in the courtroom. Lord Vasudeva commanded him to leave all matters in his hands, and Sri Aurobindo implicitly obeyed, even to the extent of not passing on to his counsel the instructions he had prepared. He was assured that he would be set free. And freed he was after a long, protracted trial at the court. Guided from within, he left the political scene and arrived at Pondicherry in the middle of his life. Along with the change of the field of his labors, there was a change in the goal of his life. 
His concern was no more the liberation of his country. That he was assured would be achieved through other instruments. But the liberation of the entire human race from subjection to ignorance, limitation and death. The divine guide led him through many untrodden regions of the spirit and he found himself on a pioneering journey of exploration of the different planes of existence and consciousness, the various worlds that are organized on those planes, leading from mind to the higher mind, the illumined mind, the intuitive mind, the over-mind, and then the super-mind, the gnosis of plenary light and knowledge. Sri Aurobindo forged new paths in yoga in order to scale these heights of the dynamic manifestation of the spirit and integrated them in his own consciousness and being. He named his yoga the Purna or the Integral Yoga inasmuch as it takes up the whole of man leaving nothing of him outside its purview and aims to develop in man an entire fullness of perfection and transmutation of nature from the human into the divine. Thus, Sri Aurobindo, along with the mother, his radiant collaborator, is the master of a new yoga which adds a new dimension to the fresh human consciousness, gives a positive direction to the world movement towards the establishment of harmony and unity, inner and outer, and aids evolutionary nature in taking the long-awaited leap from man to God. Sri Aurobindo's yoga takes up the human consciousness, cultures it in the ways of the spirit, and converts it into a divine consciousness. It brings the hour nearer when a mightier race shall inhabit the mortal's world. On nature's luminous tops, on the spirit's ground, the superman shall reign as a king of life, make earth almost the mate and power of heaven. The Mother's Spiritual Mission The Mother was once asked when and how she became conscious of her mission. When and how she came to meet Sri Aurobindo. 
Let me give her answer in her own words. For the knowledge of the mission, it is difficult to say when it came to me. It is as though I was born with it, and following the growth of the mind and brain, the precision and completeness of this consciousness grew also. Between 11 and 13, a series of psychic and spiritual experiences revealed to me not only the existence of God, but man's possibility of meeting with him or revealing him integrally in consciousness and action, of manifesting him upon earth in a life divine. This, along with a practical discipline for its fulfillment, was given to me during my body's sleep by several teachers, some of whom I met afterwards on the physical plane. Later on, as the interior and exterior development proceeded, the spiritual and physical relation with one of these beings became more and more clear and pregnant. And although I knew little of the Indian philosophies and religions at that time, I was led to call him Krishna, and thenceforth I was aware that it was with him whom I should meet on earth one day that the divine work was to be done. As soon as I saw Sri Aurobindo, I recognized him as the well-known being whom I used to call Krishna. And this is enough to explain why I am fully convinced that my place and my work are near him in India. And so to India she came in 1914. She collaborated with Sri Aurobindo in starting the journal Arya, which spelled out the gospel of divine life and the way to build it through the yoga of self-perfection. The ideal included the perfection of society and the unity of the human race. The mother had to leave after the outbreak of the First World War, but she returned in 1920 and has been here ever since, carrying on her divine ministry of bringing solace to suffering humanity, implanting aspiration for a higher and diviner life, accepting and helping those who seek the opportunity to perfect themselves in the ways of truth, love, harmony. It is a unique ashram that she has organized for the practice 
and development of a divine life, for the establishment of a center of a divine manifestation. Tracing the origins of this community, she once narrated in a reminiscent mood. Let me quote her. At the beginning of my present earthly existence, I was put into touch with many people who said they had great inner aspiration and urge towards something deeper and truer, but were tied down, subjected, slaves of that brutal necessity of earning their living, and that this weighed down upon them so much, took away so much of their time and energy, that they could not engage in any other activity, inner or outer. I heard that very often. I was very young at that time, and always I used to tell myself that if ever I could do it, I would try to create a little world, oh, quite a small one, but still a small world where people would be able to live without having to be preoccupied with problems of food and lodging and clothing and the imperious necessities of life. To see if all the energies freed by this certainty of an assured material living would spontaneously be turned towards the divine life and inner realization. Well, towards the middle of my life, at least what is generally considered the middle of human life, that means was given to me, and I could realize this, that is, create these conditions of living. That is the Sri Aurobindo Ashram created by the mother where more than 1,700 seekers are given facilities to grow out of the normal human life of ignorance, limitation and suffering into one of knowledge, freedom and joy. The pattern of life that is being shaped by her leads towards a fourfold perfection. Harmony and beauty in the material order, perception of a living consciousness in material things and cherishing them with the utmost care, full development of will and power by consecrating them to the divine, enlargement of the faculties of knowledge and opening up of the higher ranges of the mind leading to a truth consciousness, the dynamization of the center of love in the heart. The pilot project 
for the experimentation of a spiritual society accepting the burden of life in a full measure, that is the ashram, is now being extended to a larger range in Oroville. Oroville, the city of dawn, where arrangements are underway to provide for nearly a hundred thousand persons from all over the world to pursue this quest of life divine in full freedom, in conditions that permit an ideal equation of man and society. Countless devotees and disciples of the Mother in various countries have found a new light wherewith to guide themselves in the person and the teaching of the Mother. Her way is the way of illumined nature. She insists upon freedom in all walks of life. She promotes equality of sexes. Whether men or women, they have the same divine soul. Her scheme of education that is being worked out at the Sri Aurobindo International Center of Education and adapted in several places in India ensures complete liberty for the child, precludes imposition from outside and encourages self-initiation and progress. The mother has been working with Sri Aurobindo for the advent of a new life for humanity which is possible only with the development of a new consciousness in man, higher than the mental consciousness that he has at present. This is the next stage in human evolution and the mother has successfully embodied and perfected this truth consciousness in herself, thereby making it possible for others to do likewise. The work is still on. The change from the human to the divine nature is being incessantly organized and steadily built up in those who are open to this truth of divine manifestation. Her life has been one of endless patience, quenchless hope, and tireless work for the transformation of the earthly conditions of humanity. She has taken upon herself the load of the cosmic problem and tackled it at its root. Of her, Sri Aurobindo wrote more than fifty years ago, and all who have come under a radiant influence have realized it to be so true. She is above all, bound by nothing, attached to nothing in the universe.
Yet has she, more than any other, the heart of the Universal Mother. For her compassion is endless and inexhaustible. But her compassion does not blind her wisdom or turn her action from the course decreed. For the truth of things is her one concern, knowledge, her center of power. And to build our soul and our nature into the divine truth, her mission and her labor. The Mother on Sri Aurobindo Since the beginning of earth history, Sri Aurobindo has always presided over the great earthly transformations under one form or another, one name or another. All through history, Sri Aurobindo played an active part, especially in the most important movements of history, he was there and playing the most important part. But he was not always visible. What Sri Aurobindo represents in the world's history is not a teaching, not even a revelation. It is a decisive action direct from the Supreme. Sri Aurobindo's birth is eternal in the history of the universe in four different ways on four ascending planes of consciousness. Physically, the consequences of the birth will be of eternal importance in the world. Mentally, it is a birth that will be eternally remembered in the universal history. Psychically, a birth that recurs forever from age to age upon earth. Spiritually, the birth of the eternal upon earth. Sri Aurobindo has come on the earth not to bring a teaching or a creed in competition with previous creeds or teachings, but to show the way to overpass the past and to open concretely the route towards an imminent and irresistible future. Sri Aurobindo came to tell the world of the beauty of the future that must be realized. He came to give not a hope, 
but a certitude of the splendour towards which the world moves. The world is not an unfortunate accident. It is a marvel which moves towards its expression. The world needs the certitude of the beauty of the future. And Sri Aurobindo has given that assurance. Sri Aurobindo came to tell us, one need not leave the earth to find the truth. One need not leave the life to find his soul. One need not abandon the world or have only limited beliefs to enter into relation with the Divine. The Divine is everywhere, in everything, and if He is hidden, it is because we do not take the trouble to discover Him. Sri Aurobindo came upon earth to teach this truth to men. He told them that man is only a transitional being living in a mental consciousness, but having the possibility of acquiring a new consciousness, the truth consciousness, and capable of living a life perfectly harmonious, good and beautiful, happy and fully conscious. During the whole of his life on earth, Sri Aurobindo gave all his time to establish in himself this consciousness he called supramental and to help those gathered around him to realize it. Sri Aurobindo incarnated in a human body the supramental consciousness and has not only revealed to us the nature of the path to follow and the method of following it so as to arrive at the goal, but has also by his own personal realization given us the example. He has provided us with the proof that the thing can be done and the time is now to do it. He has come to bid the earth to prepare for its luminous future. Sri Aurobindo's books represent a whole understanding, a whole knowledge and a whole power and so, each one of his books is at once a symbol and a representation. Each book of Sri Aurobindo contains symbolically, potentially, what is there in him. Sri Aurobindo excludes nothing. He combines all and synthesizes all points of view. 
Sri Aurobindo is the champion of true freedom beyond all rules and limits, the total freedom of the perfect union with the supreme and eternal truth. Sri Aurobindo is constantly among us and reveals himself to those who are ready to see and hear him. Sri Aurobindo is always with us, enlightening, guiding, protecting. We must answer to his grace by a perfect faithfulness. Sri Aurobindo does not belong to the past nor to history. Sri Aurobindo is the future advancing towards its realization. He still shows us the way to follow in order to hasten the realization of a glorious future fashioned by the divine will. To express our gratitude to Sri Aurobindo, we can do nothing better than to be a living demonstration of his teaching. The best homage that we can render to Sri Aurobindo is to have a thirst for progress and to open all our being to the divine influence of which he is the messenger upon the earth. Sri Aurobindo and the Gita. The Gita is perhaps the most quoted scripture in the writings of Sri Aurobindo. At Baroda and in Calcutta, during his pre-Pondicherry years, especially in the Alipur jail, in which he was incarcerated for one full year, the Gita was his constant companion. To him, it was not merely a hallowed text throwing light on a rich spiritual heritage of the past, but a living guide in his explorations of the realms of the Divine Spirit. So much so, that at one time during the crisis of his court trial, Vasudeva, Lord of the Bhagavad Gita, revealed himself in an unmistakable manner and awoke Sri Aurobindo to the universal presence of the Divine, even in the meanest mortal, and guided him from moment moment. Sri Aurobindo makes a distinction between the lasting and the permanent elements in the Gita and the purely temporal and local elements with little relevance to the succeeding ages. He concentrates upon those contents 
that have an eternal appeal to the mind of man, and in his monumental essays on the Gita, highlights the special features of the message of the Gita. Before delving into the profounder aspects of its teaching, Sri Aurobindo discusses a few problems relating to the textual history, the significance of the names of the characters and their setting, and so on. He regards the Gita as an integral part of the Mahabharata, not a later interpolation as suggested by some. Arjuna and Sri Krishna may have been, and there is plenty of evidence in support of this conclusion, real historical characters. But for our purpose, Arjuna is the representative man and Krishna the divine teacher. The main feature of the wisdom enshrined in the Gita is the spirit of synthesis. By the time of the epic Mahabharata, a good number of conflicting schools of philosophical thought and spiritual practice had sprung up and almost entirely displaced the older order of harmony and understanding of the common goal of human journey. The Gita is at pains to promote a dialogue among the votaries of knowledge, devotion and works. It points out that all the three are the means to attain the divine, singly pursued, but when they are fused together at the right stages in the Godward path, the results are integral and far-ranging. Each is necessary for the completion of the others. Knowledge without devotion and love remains dry and misses a good deal of the delight aspect of the divine. Devotion without illumined knowledge is apt to be unruly and falls short of the full stature of the divine being. Both without surrender and consecration of the will in works lack the dynamism of realization in actual life. For an all-sided crowning realization, all the three must combine. The Gita, Sri points out, rescues the ancient truth of sacrifice from the overgrowth of ritualistic encrustation that came to conceal its true face in the course of the ages that followed the ages of the Veda and the Upanishads. Sacrifice, says the Lord, is as old 
as the creation. It is the basic law of interchange and mutual help and growth among men and men, among men and gods, among all creatures. No one can live by himself alone, consciously or unconsciously. One gives out one's energies at all levels of existence, draws upon others, and in this mutual self-giving, enforced by nature, lies the secret of progress. The Gita calls upon man to participate consciously in this rite of sacrifice, of which the ritual act is only a symbol. All that he is and does must be consecrated and offered to the Divine, the Divine in oneself, the Divine in others. Thus done, the whole of life becomes a pilgrim sacrifice to God, and every detail acquires a sacred significance. Life truly becomes a dharma kshetra, a field for spiritual progress and perfection. The Gita also reconciles oppositions erected by the logical human mind between certain concepts and truths of spiritual experience. Thus, for instance, Philosophers tend to speak of the impersonal reality as the soul or real truth and the personal as either imaginary or an inferior derivation. The solution is presented in the experience of the Purushottama, the Supreme Divine, who transcends both. The impersonal and personal are in fact different but necessary poises of the Supreme Divine. The impersonal, the immutable is, we may say, the base for the radiation, the manifestation of the personal, the mutable. The one complements the other. And both together are the two wings of the Divine Soul in manifestation. Then there is the question of works. Are works a bondage or means of liberation? Many are the answers given by philosophers and scholars, each conflicting with the others. Some condemn works altogether as chains of karma. Some prescribe only ritual acts as means of attainment. The Gita, however, goes to the root of the question and points out that none living can be free from action. Action done in ignorance for one's own selfish purpose forges bondage. But all action, high or low in common eyes,
done as an offering to the divine without claim for fruit, in a spirit of disinterestedness, as a surrendered channel to the divine Shakti that alone truly works in freedom, is a powerful means of spiritual growth and liberation. Rightly pursued, this path of consecrated works gathers on its way the essential elements of love and devotion to the Supreme Master of all works and culminates in a direct knowledge of His manifold divinity. The Gita, Sri Aurobindo explains, gives due importance to all the traditional ingredients of sadhana, faith, devotion, tapasya, clarity of mind, but gives the highest importance to surrender, the entire self-giving of the human soul to its Lord. The final call of the Gita is, Become my minded, my lover and adorer, a sacrificer to me, bow thyself to me, to me thou shalt come. This is my pledge and promise to thee, for dear art thou to me. Abandon all dharmas and take refuge in me alone. I will deliver thee from all sin and evil. <laughs> 